Please listen on as I read now Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 20. Hear God's word. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews, part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who never had walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men and Barnabas. They called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made heaven, the earth, the sea and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your word. We acknowledge that man does not live by bread alone, but from every word which proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Lord, your word is our strength. It is our sustenance. It is our life. You have the words of life, Lord Jesus. To whom else would we turn? Well, oh God, give us this life this night. Give us strength through your word, humbly preached. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Still, we are considering Paul's first missionary journey along with Barnabas, both of whom are called in these verses apostles. 
Uh, in fact, at, at times in the preaching of this first missionary journey, uh, you may have noticed I say uh, the apostles, and then I catch myself and, and I make it singular. Uh, maybe you've noticed that, maybe you haven't. But there's a certain ambiguity here. Uh, in one sense, Paul alone was an apostle. In another sense, Paul and Barnabas were apostles. Ordinarily, when I'm referring to an apostle, I refer to it in the primary sense. An apostle is someone who, who, who witnessed the resurrected Lord and whom the resurrected Lord specifically commissioned or sent out to preach, to be a witness of his resurrection. We might say apostle with a capital A, but there is a lesser sense in which the word is used in Acts and in which we might use it, not to create confusion needlessly, but here is what we find in Scripture, and here's what we find the word means. An apostle is simply someone who is sent out. And you remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 10. How can they preach unless they're sent? And didn't we see that Paul and Barnabas in Antioch were sent out, both of them together? In that sense, we can say that they were sent out as apostles, lowercase a. Well, these two men, these two apostles found themselves now in three separate destinations, having moved on from Pisidian Antioch, being run out of the town by the Jews. They arrived first in Iconium, and following that, we have the, the account of, uh, of Lystra, and then briefly Derby. though we'll leave things off there and finish it next time. So from Pisidian Antioch to Iconium. And though I don't necessarily encourage you to do it at this moment, if it helps you to visualize it perhaps later, you could look at the map in the back of your Bible where we have the missionary journeys. And you can picture the journeys of Paul and Barnabas at this time. Well, so often as we follow these men, even before the missionary journeys began, we notice these common features. Uh, and the common features naturally are going to come out again and again, in a sense uh, that is something which is which is comforting to us because we realize that the Christian life is full of familiar things, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. And, and so it was for these first Christians uh, as they were going about their journeys, their uh, their their program was familiar in one place and in another. And so the first thing that we see is evangelism in Iconium, verse one. It happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and Greeks, believed. Now, there are common features that we notice uh, between this and the prior narrative immediately. The first being uh, that Paul and Barnabas go to the synagogue. Now, that's important to notice because he had just said uh, in verse 46 Having been rejected by the Jews there in the synagogue there, Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you rejected and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Well, lest we thought that was a kind of ultimate policy that Paul was finished with the Jews, we see, no, he continued to believe in the Jewish priority. Salvation was for the Jew first and also to the Greek. It was always to the synagogues. They went first. That's what they did here. We also see, as we saw in uh, in uh, Pisidian Antioch, that there was widespread belief. The crowds hear the preaching and they believe. We also see that uh, this response was mixed in nature. It, many Gentiles believed, but also many Jews believed. 
And so as a result of their evangelistic labors there, we read simply that a great multitude, both of Jews and of the Greeks, believed. Now, one of the things that we can notice, and I'm going to stress this later in the sermon, is the variety of expressions that Luke uses. He doesn't get locked into one way of putting it. Sometimes he says, well, these people turned from their sins to the Lord. Other times he says they were baptized and they were full of the spirit. Here you notice he simply says they believed, which is a very uh, fitting way, I I think, to put it here, given what we've been considering in Romans chapter 10. Let us uh, acknowledge that that was implicit in some of the earlier conversion stories, but I find it very helpful here how simply he puts it. The, The crowds believed what was being preached. Do we notice that, uh, therefore, the priority of faith? What happened as a result of the evangelism of these two men is that the crowds believed. Indeed, so strong is that emphasis on faith here that in contrast to those who believed, we read uh, of the unbelieving Jews in the next verse. But alongside the priority of faith in describing how it is that a man is saved, which again we've seen over and over in Romans chapter 10, also wonder at this, that on hearing the message a great multitude believed. And that's something that I just want to keep stressing that we need to hear. We live in an age where only it seems pragmatism and worldliness can gather a crowd, but we need to be reminded that so too can the gospel, the faithful preaching of the gospel can gather a crowd. It can also uh, cause a, a great crowd to turn on you. Well, we'll see that here too as well. And it can lead to days of the remnant. Soon we'll see that in the beginning of Romans chapter 11. But these weren't days of the remnant, these were days of revival. And so much of the history of Acts and the history of the church is full of encouraging reports of the amazing success that these evangelists were having. Not just a great multitude, a crowd in general, but Jews and Greeks together, which, uh, again, you see him saying that uh, a great multitude, both of Jews and Greeks. Every word here is so carefully chosen. Let us remember That the gospel is for all kinds of people. It isn't for one kind of person only. It isn't just for the Jew or having rejected the Jew. Now it's for the Gentile only. No, it's for both kinds of people. It's for all kinds of people. There isn't any class of person for whom the gospel is not meant to be given. But another important thing to see, and and soon this will come out in uh, Romans chapter 11, is that Luke is indicating that for as uh, widespread and as hostile as Jewish unbelief was in those days, it was not total. It was not complete. Still, there were Jewish believers in those days. Uh, I, I feel that I could say more on that, except I'm going to say so much on that in the coming sermons in Romans. So we'll just leave it there for now. Let us see on the other side of this in verse two and verse four that there was fierce opposition. And so you have widespread belief and you also have widespread opposition. Now, lest you think this is isolated to the days of the apostle, go and read the accounts of uh, of revival and other times in history and you'll see both things. You'll see widespread belief. You'll see fierce opposition every time you'll find these men whom God used so mightily 
where men, Spurgeon, Whitfield, these kinds of men who were men were utterly depressed and utterly discouraged, even though God was drawing crowds at their preaching. Why? Because crowds were also gathering in opposition to them. And that's a hard thing for a mortal to face. The scene is similar uh, to what we found in Pisidian Antioch when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Again, verse 50, the, the, the Jews stirred up devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city raised a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So here, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. And the multitude of the city, verse 4, was divided, part sided with the Jews, part sided with the apostles. You see, the Jews not only rejected the gospel, but they were seeking to dissuade the Gentiles from believing. And do we appreciate the tragedy of this, seeing that, again, hearkening back to what was said last time, for so the Lord has commanded us, verse 47, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be salvation uh, you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Here the light was meant to be shining. And you remember what I said this morning. The light of the gospel is not put under a basket. Except in the case of the Jews in the synagogue. It was, they were meant to be a light to the nations. And they were sadly not fulfilling their calling. They were putting that light under a basket. But the, re- the really interesting thing to notice here. And the thing that contributes to the overall picture. That. Uh, has been implicit thus far in the many towns they visited, but only here stated explicitly is the presence of division. And did not our Lord predict that as well, thinking back to what we compared uh, Acts chapter 13 with, so we could Acts chapter 14, that is Matthew chapter 10. And our Lord says, don't think that I came to bring peace, but I, well, I came to bring a sword, a sword of division. The whole effect of Christianity, the whole effect of the kingdom of God and of the gospel. My whole effect, Jesus is saying, of coming into this world is not so much to bring people together as to create division. It's a very unhappy thought, especially to modern ears. But it was no less happy uh, to the ears of the people in those days. The people were divided. Luke says as much. Many believed, but many disbelieved. And these two factions found themselves not happily standing side by side, but in bitter opposition. Let me say it again. What creates division is the gospel. It is the gospel that creates division. It is the gospel that is a sword that divides man and man. Two who were formerly at peace now find themselves bitterly at odds. As some some believe and others do not. So this division occurs. Do we see how this is inevitable given what the gospel is? The gospel is on the one hand a rock upon which uh, men build a house and find everlasting life. But it is to others a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Men hear the message of the gospel and they're either glad or they are incensed. They bitterly resent what's being said to them. And what Christian, by the way. What Christian on some level does not know this? Is there any Christian here who hasn't experienced the division, the sort of division that Jesus is speaking of here uh, in Matthew 10, or which Luke is recounting here? 
the way in which the Christian is someone who is not friends any longer with the world. And the world is claiming allegiance to itself, but the Christian says, no more can I offer my allegiance. My allegiance is to Jesus. Do you see how it is inevitable that there should be division? And this is uh, the essential cost of discipleship. It's the thing that keeps so many from believing. It's that they realize this, credit to them at least. They counted the cost. They realized it was too costly. But do we see how the apostles respond to this? In verse 3 and 5 and 6. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders done by their hand also verses five and six when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews to abuse and stone them. They became aware of it and they fled. So the first thing we see is that they stayed a while. What were they doing as they stayed a while? Sometimes we think it's possible to get this impression when you read Acts, but it's a false impression. And every now and again, Luke gives us a clue that this was wrong. We think, well, they evangelized. And they stayed one or two uh, Sabbaths and then they were gone. But that isn't an accurate picture. They often stayed a very long time. We don't know how long they stayed here. We just are simply told they stayed a while. Uh, the picture is something like, uh, I imagine from uh, chapter 13, verse 43, they were speaking to them, persuade, uh, persuading them to continue in the grace of God. That's what they were doing there. They were ministering to the saints there. They were establishing the church. They were unfolding the doctrines that they had preached to them, unfolding the mystery of the gospel to them. And you see, that's not something you can just do in one sermon. It takes many sermons. It takes even a lifetime of sermons. They stayed a while. The other thing we see before they fled is that they spoke boldly in the Lord. They were unafraid. Uh, these men we're seeking, uh, we read in verse 5, to stone them and to kill them. The animosity was bitter. It was fierce. We can imagine that Paul and Barnabas were men like Spurgeon and Whitfield. They were becoming discouraged. They were becoming depressed. And yet they pressed on in their labors and they spoke boldly in the face of opposition. I was so impressed with this line. I'll read it to you again. I read it last time. Matthew Henry, when adversaries of Christ's cause are daring, its advocates should be the bolder. And while many judge themselves unworthy of eternal life, others who appear less likely to, to desire, desire to hear more of the glad tidings of salvation. They continued boldly, not simply to denounce their opponents, but because their heart went out to these new converts. And while many, as Henry says, judge themselves unworthy of salvation, others who appear less likely desired to hear more of the glad tidings and how happy they were uh, to tell them. We also see the Lord confirm their message. That message, by the way, here is called the word of his grace. Uh, again, I just notice how every word of this account. Uh, obviously, we believe scripture is inspired, every word of it. But, but it's helpful sometimes to take stock of that and to notice every word. Every word has value. The word of his grace. What were they preaching? They were preaching the word of his grace. They were preaching the gospel of grace. And the Lord confirmed that gracious message of salvation with signs and wonders. You know, I often wonder how to describe the miracles because the miracles aren't something that we experience or we know. We read about them in the Bible. We believe they occurred. We believe in the supernaturalism of the Bible. It's just we don't see them in our day. What is a parallel to the miracles? 
Well, I would say the miracles, and I think this is exactly what Luke is saying here, the miracles are like the sacraments. They adorn the preaching. They never occupied the primary place. They were given to confirm what was said. In fact, uh, the way he puts it here is that it was the Lord himself who was bearing witness to the word of his grace. It was the Lord who was confirming uh, the truth and the authority of his sent out men, his apostles. But we also see that they didn't stay forever. For when it became clear that their lives were in jeopardy, they fled. So they stayed, they spoke boldly, they performed many miracles, but eventually they fled. And they fled to Lystra. Do we find any fault here? Do we say these men were cowards? They ought to have stayed. Or do we realize that our Lord himself told them to go from one town to the next, especially when it was evident that they were being rejected? And we see how often, by the way, the apostles did this. They literally fled for their lives. Already Paul has done this once or twice. So, too, we find John Calvin in the Reformation. I like to remind people that John Calvin was a Frenchman. He, he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't originally from Switzerland. He didn't grow up in Geneva. He was fleeing persecution in France. Do we fault the great John Calvin? Or do we find that fleeing is an appropriate response to persecution? Now, am I saying that they would have been wrong to stay? Not at all. Only that they were free to leave and that under the constraint of their charge, which was to go forth into all the world, it was prudent and wise for them to do so. They would have done so anyways. Well, what did we find them doing in the next town? And again, you see the familiar pattern, although I don't want to rush over this too quickly. They were preaching the gospel there in Lystra, where where they fled to. Well, again, so often we've seen this phrasing that we're tempted to move on. But I would argue we should stay here for a moment. Do we realize that everywhere we, uh, they went, their message was the same? I spoke of it as the apostolic kerygma. They were preaching the gospel. They were ever preaching the gospel. They were ever bearing glad tidings of good things. And, and, and just imagine where the church would be today if they hadn't done that. If that was not their singular commitment to preach the gospel Always and then to stay a while and to unpack the implications of the gospel. Not only uh, do we see then that their message was always the same. It was always the message of salvation in Jesus Christ by faith alone. But this is also an important confirmation of the importance and the priority of preaching itself. This is uh, these men were preachers as the Lord sent them out. He sent them to preach the gospel. But notice, and here once again, I would notice uh, the variety that Luke is capable of, that whereas the preaching and the response was the main thing in Iconium, and the sac- uh, not the sacrament, sorry, the miracle was something of an afterthought, here things are reversed. The preaching is briefly mentioned in verse 7, but it's really the confirming miracle that becomes the focus, the thing that he wishes to stress, not as though to suggest for a moment That the miracle in this instance assumed priority over the preaching. No, the preaching was still the main thing. It was still the first thing. And the miracle ever occupied the secondary place as the confirming sign. But look at this miracle that occurred and considered what happened. Let me read the account. In Lystra, a certain man, uh, and something remarkable happens as a result of this, by the way, as we'll see. Uh, In Lystra, a certain man 
Without strength in his feet, was sitting a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand straight up on your feet. And he leapt and walked. Does that sound familiar, by the way? That that miracle strongly resembles the confirming miracle that Peter uh, that Peter uh, performed in chapter three. And it's meant to because we're meant to see that just as these men were preachers of the same gospel. So they were also capable of performing the same kinds of miracles, the same kinds of miracles that confirmed the same message that they preached. By the way, did you notice that uh, that. As this man was healed, the emphasis upon his faith was once again stressed. Paul, seeing his faith, told him to stand up and be made well. But what was really so striking about this is what happened next. In essence, in verses 11 through 13, the crowds there respond not with faith. This is a very different episode. And we need to see it wasn't so much the preaching as it was the miracle that brought about not faith, but superstition and idolatry. The crowds treated uh, there in Lystra, Paul and Barnabas, as gods to be worshipped and sacrificed to. And their reason for doing so is based upon an ancient tale, which John Stott tells in his commentary. And I don't imagine that I could state it any better than he. He says uh, that. Uh, Well, here is an ancient tale told by the Latin poet Ovid. The supreme god Jupiter, uh, Zeus to the Greeks, and his son Mercury, Hermes, once visited the hill country of Phrygia, uh, disguised as mortal men. In their incognito, they sought hospitality, but were rebuffed a thousand times. At last, however, they were offered a lodging at a tiny cottage thatched with straw and reeds from the marsh. Here lived an elderly peasant couple from uh, Philemon and uh, Bacchus who entertained them out of their poverty. Later, the gods rewarded them, but destroyed by flood the homes which would not take them in. Well, these people, you can understand their eagerness and their enthusiasm. They were terrified lest this happen again. And so when they saw these men, not so much their preaching, but their mighty works, they concluded, here the gods have visited us again, and we're not going to miss our chance to be blessed as that elderly woman was. Here is idolatry. Here is superstition. The church has always had to contend against these things. And that's exactly what we see the apostles doing. They, uh, in turn, become alarmed. They become sorrowful. And they plead with these men to turn from their idolatry and to worship the true God. Verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitudes crying out. And we'll see what they cried out. But in essence, they said, do not worship us, we're but men. Worship the true and the living God. Could I just notice by way of passing, and perhaps I'm making too much of this, but I don't think so, that it's easy for the preacher to fall into this kind of thing. It's easy for the preacher to be enamored with the praise of men as though he were the object of their worship, as though he preached to them only to secure their adoration. But it's clear, it's so clear that the slightest hint of this, although it was an alarming episode, I admit, but even the slightest hint of this was incredibly alarming to them. I'm not saying that the preacher doesn't need to be encouraged by the flock. It's clear that Paul and Barnabas needed this every bit as much as I do. But any hint at which 
Uh, the people are enamored with the man or with his message rather than as a result of the preaching, uh, all praise and honor and adoration being directed to God. This is a very grievous thing. And it ought to grieve the heart of the minister. The minister ought to plead with his people that the object of their praise and uh, the aim of his preaching is always the honor and the worship of God. But this is a real temptation, the temptation to be praised by the people, the, 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 the temptation uh, to be praised by the people rather than uh, the praise being directed by God, Let, uh, to God, rather. Let me say this as well, that as we find in the apostles, uh, a true concern for souls, they were, I keep saying they were occupied with their message or preoccupied with their message, but so too with their hearers. They were absorbed with their hearers. And as men who had a true concern for souls, so they were willing to denounce sin in their hearers. And if anything proves uh, a preacher's willingness not to be the object of the praise of his people, it's his willingness to denounce sin in the hearer. This is a model of preaching. What did they say? They said, we're but men and we preach to you as men like this. Our message is this. You should turn. You should turn from your sin. You should turn to the true and living God. Again, as a model, uh, And as a parallel, we find Peter in connection with his miracle preaching this. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Turn from your sin. Why would you die again? Ezekiel chapter 38. Why will you die? Would you not rather turn and live and be saved? And listen here, they say to these pagan idolaters, they summarize the message of the Old Testament with the simple words, uh, to turn, how do they put it? We, tur- we, we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things and uh, uh, to the living God. You should turn to the living God. That's the message of the Old Testament, though it's not, you notice here, cited. They like to, to cite the Old Testament when preaching to Jews. But when preaching to pagans, they would summarize the Old Testament, only they wouldn't tell them it was the Old Testament. They would assume uh, the prophetic voice, the voice of the prophets in preaching their message. Turn from these dead idols to the living God, the one who made the world, the one who allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, they said, and yet who did not leave himself without witness for his works constantly testify to their maker in heaven, leaving men without excuse. Do you see? Now, I said this this morning, but here we have uh, an, an instance of this. And so we'll find in Acts chapter 17 that the apostles made the, the, the appeal, the gospel appeal uh, on the basis of general revelation. Isn't that interesting to see? And yet we find the apostle doing just that thing in Romans chapter 10. It, it, that is a valid thing to do. Let us see. It's valid to appeal to what men know. The very things they know that leave them without excuse and then to call them to believe and to turn To the one and the living God. And by the way, remember, we already read they were preaching the gospel there. Well, so strong is the superstition of these men that the power of the preaching and the evident authority with which they delivered their message only aroused their hearers to further idolatry. We read in verse 18 and these uh, with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. In a sense, you could say they were met with utter failure. They were so earnest, and yet they couldn't convince a single soul on that day in that town. In one town, amazing success. 
in another town for all of their earnestness and all of the authority with which they preached and performed miracles, they could not break the spell of superstition and idolatry. I, I would go further. They could not break the spell that Satan cast over that town. And so here we are reminded that for all of the authority and all of the power that the apostles had, and, and even which he, he, he gives to Christians and Christian ministers today, that we are indeed mere men. That was exactly what he had just said. And the Lord was making it clear to those men on that day, the very things they said. We are mere mortals like you. And they did not have the power in their own authority to save a single soul. Do you realize in light of his own experience, you see it, it, it sheds light and it brings to life the things Paul says in his epistles. He says, you know, in one place it was the aroma of life in the other place, an aroma of death. And, and how can I account for this? And by the way, who is sufficient for these things? I'm just a man. And he realized and he wondered more and more that what accounted for the difference was not himself. It was not his efforts. It was not his earnestness. Of course, the Lord required that from him. But what made the difference always was the purpose of God, the purpose of God, which is according to election. The wonder of God's sovereignty and of his grace in saving sinners. You know, I often say uh, that Lloyd-Jones calls this the romance of preaching. I don't know how romantic it is that sometimes you preach and nothing happens. Other times you preach, amazing things happen. But to him, at least, that was a very romantic notion. Well, we find uh, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas in one town being gladly received and believed in another. Utter failures. And I, I think that's very helpful for us to see. It's helpful for me to see. The Lord is sovereign. But it's amazing to consider the final episode. Verses 19 and 20. The Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. The next day departed with Barnabas to Derbe. The Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium. We didn't really think that their wrath would be so easily quenched, did we? No. And here they persuade these very multitudes, the very multitudes who were prepared to praise Paul and Barnabas and offer sacrifices to them, to worship them. They persuade them now to stone them, or to stone Paul at least. Do you see, once again in this, the malice of men against God and his messengers? We see in this how men really feel about God, even as he invites sinners graciously to be saved, to turn from their sins and be saved and to have life forevermore. I will blot out your transgressions. That's the message. And do you see how hateful that is to man? Why is that hateful to man? Because he hates God. He resents him entirely. There was never uh, a more gracious, there was never a more uh, kind and condescending invitation that God had ever uttered. And yet... They hated him for it. And today they hate him for it. It's interesting to notice in their desire to kill Paul that they thought that they had. And we might have thought they had as well. He was stoned and they dragged him out of the city thinking he had been killed. Only to our amazement, we find that he rises again and he returns to the city. Well, let us never again think of Paul as a coward if we were ever tempted to. They had stoned him nearly to death, and perhaps they had. I'm not sure. Perhaps they had killed him, or nearly had killed him. 
F.F. Uh, Bruce says, the whole incident has the flavor of a miracle to it. Let us at least see they stoned him nearly to death. They thought they had killed him. Here the man rises up again. How did he do so? No doubt by the supernatural intervention of God testifying again uh, to his seal upon his apostle. As he returns to the city, uh, we only know that he spent the night there, but I cannot help but say and believe that as he returned there, he preached to them once again. We later see the apostle reflecting upon this. He talks about once being stoned. We read that earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. This is where it happened. He, in, in Galatians, and he was in that region here, he talks about bearing on his marks the body of Jesus. Well, well, those stones left a mark that never left his body. But do you see how difficult it was to deter this man who was so full of the Spirit? I won't say that you couldn't discourage him or depress him, but I will say this, you couldn't stop him. And we're reminded once more, I'll read it again, of what Henry said. When the adversaries of Christ's cause are daring, its advocate should be the bolder. Finally, we see these two men departing to, Der- to Derby, where we will pick up next time. Let me just note in closing what it is that the apostle has to say about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. As he reflects upon his experience of being stoned, he says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, and on and on he goes. He says, do you want something to impress you? Well, I'll impress you with this. Do you have any idea how much I've experienced just and suffered just so that you could hear the gospel? I speak like a madman, and yet I'll indulge you. Here's something that ought to impress you. If I'll boast of anything, Paul says, I'll boast In my weakness, verse 30, if I boast, if I must boast, I will boast in things which concern my infirmity. Again, he says uh, in chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, just a few verses later, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Do you realize the value of these things for Paul himself? There is a lesson here to be learned for the Christian, because as the Christian, you see, Especially in the case of a man like Paul, he was experienced these amazing things, things many of us will never know. It was possible for him to become elated and even the kinds of things that we're able to experience, the witness and the testimony of the Holy Spirit, the mountaintops that we uh, in, in which we are we are able to commune with God with joy unspeakable and full of glory. These things have a tendency to elate us so much as to puff us up, and yet we find that God is constantly humbling us. You see, the value of this is not just for our witness, but it's for ourselves. When God afflicts his servants, it's so that they might know the power of his grace, which is made perfect in weakness. That's what the apostle Paul was learning. You see, it wasn't just what he was teaching others, it's what he was teaching him, and that's the very thing that he's teaching you and me. May we have the grace to learn the lesson along with Paul. Amen. And let us return praise to God by standing together and singing hymn 517, hymn 517.